In high school, I used to hate surprise quizzes, especially in French class, because I, I barely passed by the seat of my pants every term, and the test always showed that. You know, I, I would study at the last minute, and, and then things just never worked out well. So I, I want to start this morning, and I want to ask this question. If we were to have a pop quiz right now, a quiz that tested your moral and character, your, your spiritual nature, how would you fare? If without knowing that you were being tested and a, a situation were to present itself that exploited that secret sin that no one else knows about, how would you fare? Would you pass or fail? Several years ago, a friend of mine went on holiday by himself in a small resort in another country. During the first day, he got to know a couple around the pool, and he was relaxing in those wonderful, you know, lean-back chairs. And as he was talking to them, they were having great conversations about being in Canada and work. A couple were young. They were handsome. He was blonde, had a six-pack, and she was a very pretty young woman. At one point, they excused themselves and came back 10 or 15 minutes later. Instead of sitting beside him looking at the pool, the gentleman sat beside him with a book, and between them there was this little bag, slightly opened, a gym bag. And she came down in a bikini, and again, instead of sitting facing the pool, she sat directly opposite my friend in a provocative manner and kind of nonchalantly. Well, my friend was a Christian, he got suspicious, first of all, of her sitting right opposite him like that, but also of this little bag between them that was opened. So he excused himself and got up and went for a walk. To this day, he's not for sure if he was being set up for something nefarious. But if you ask him, he'll tell you this. It was a test. Now, I bet you when I first the idea of having a quest or a test about uh, your moral character, it probably came across as a silly idea. But the reality is, is that every single day, situations like that arise, where we're called to make decisions that reflect the true moral state of our heart. That morning, my friend had a pop quiz that tested his holiness. And praise the Lord, he passed with flying colors. Now last week we started a new mini-series on the armor of God. This week we're going to start and look at the second piece of the armor, that is the breastplate of righteousness. And I want to do basically what I did last week in this sermon. I, I want us to look at four different areas about this breastplate of righteousness. First of all, historically, what was the breastplate uh, that uh, was so important to the soldiers? Secondly, what does that breastplate uh, symbolize for us today? Thirdly, how are we to wear it? And lastly, why is it even important that we put it on on a daily basis? Now, if you've ever watched a cop show or a war movie, or, or perhaps you've met a vet, and you see those flak jackets or flak vests, and we call them Kevlar vests now because of the material. The vests are made of bulletproof materials. 
They cover the front and the back. They're made for wearing either underneath clothes or over top of clothes. And, and they protect this area of the body, don't they? They protect the area uh, known as the trunk or the, the abdomen, which where we have all of our vital organs, our heart, our lungs, our spleen, our kidneys. They're designed, these vests, specifically to stop a bullet at short range or to, to deflect a knife attack, and yet, at the same time, provide the greatest amount of flexibility for the soldier. So, you can understand it. A soldier could survive a wound to the arm or to the leg, but anything that was penetrating in this area, the abdomen or the chest, could mean certain death. Now, Protective vests like this have been part of a soldier's basic uniform for thousands of years. When Paul wrote about, uh, wrote his letter to the Ephesians and talking about the Roman soldiers, those soldiers that day had their own form of a Kevlar vest. It was this breastplate that covered the area from their shoulders to the waist and sometimes down to their mid-thighs, and it covered the back and the front. Now, depending on the rank, it, they could have been made of different things. The higher the rank, they were often uh, solid pieces of forged metal or fancy slates of metal all clasped together. They could be solid pieces of heavy leather, of one from the front and one for the back tied together. Or they could simply be a tunic on, on which strips of leather or metal were sewn on and so they dangled. Now, an important part of the breastplate was that it was to be strong enough to deflect an arrow or to, to, to take the slash of a sword or even a javelin thrust, while at the same time, again, giving the greatest agility and mobility to the soldier. It protected the soldier in close quarter combat, even by a strange or stray blow. Uh, even that could kill him. So it was absolutely necessary. It was an absolute necessity as part of his basic equipment. Any soldier who went into battle without his breastplate fastened was sure to face death by, by a determined enemy, no matter how skillful he was. Here in Ephesians 6, when speaking of the armor of God, Paul tells us as Christians that we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if you've done any studying on the armor of God, you'll know that there are two camps of evangelical thought here. One camp would say, well, what Paul's talking about here is an objective righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We're to put that on every day. Uh, the other camp would say, no, no we're talking about a, a righteousness that comes from righteous living, a subjective or experiential righteousness. Well, to start and to to inch our way closer to a full understanding of what Paul's talking about here, we first need to recognize that this breastplate is part of the armor of God. It was God's before he gave it to us. It's something that he provides us, and as such, that righteousness is not our own. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the only cure for this unrighteousness is a righteousness that is foreign to us, that is not ours. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only basis for our justification before a holy God. Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
But you know what? Even now, on my best day as a Christian, I can never live up to God's perfect standard. I can try my best to live a godly life, but there's never a day when I don't sin in my heart, in my actions, in my commitments. Even my noblest actions of sacrifice and love are tainted by sin. And I'm constantly remembered as I fall short of that glory of God that there is only one penalty for sin, and that is death. There's never a day when I don't need to gird myself with the truth that it is only Jesus and His righteousness. That there's nothing I can do to add to my salvation. There's nothing I can do to guarantee my salvation. There's nothing I can do to secure God's pleasure. I am utterly and wholly dependent on Christ. When I sin and my conscience is is paralyzed with guilt and shame, when Satan assaults me and says, what a horrible person you are, how can you be saved and continue to sin? I can be assured that when God looks down upon me and sees me in my shame, he sees only Christ. Now, there's never a day when I don't need to put on the truth of Christ's righteousness. I am saved by him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we also need to recognize that the Apostle Paul here isn't just inventing all of these pieces of the armor. They actually come from the Old Testament. And clearly, we just saw, uh, I read at the very beginning of, the, of our time together, actually comes from Isaiah Chapter 59, verse 17. Now, in the previous chapters just leading up, the prophet is is speaking of God's resolve to deal with Israel's enemies. But in chapter 59, the enemy changes because we now see this description of a coming warrior who will deal with a greater enemy, their sin. And as God looks around, he sees no one who is able to intercede on their behalf, on behalf of the people of God. And so God himself promises to put on this breastplate of righteousness to redeem his people. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, isn't it? This is what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. He fulfilled all of the demands of God's perfect righteousness, and in dying for our sin, he becomes our righteousness. When he died in our place for our sins, our sin was transferred to him. But you know what? There was a double transfer that happened. Because as children of God, we are justified by faith on the basis of his righteousness, which was transferred to us. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation, and there is now no condemnation. We have peace with God, and that peace is the result of Christ's righteousness applied to us. And and that's so critical to know, to experience, to put on on a daily basis, because we're in battle with Satan and the evil forces of this world. I just have to look at this past week. And I'm overwhelmed with the number of times that I sinned. I failed God because of lust because of pride, 
because of lying, because of coveting, because of cheating. And that's why I need to be so thankful, you need to be so thankful, that we have a breastplate, a breastplate that is Christ's righteousness, and we can put it on, we can appropriate it every day. This one truth must dominate our life as a soldier of God. The objective truth of Christ's righteousness assures us we have peace with God so that even during the darkest times of my disobedience, when sin finds its way back into my heart and wants to lead me astray, God will never forsake me. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness, daily assures me of God's love. It assures me that I am a child of God. It assures me that God is for me and not against me. It woos me. It strengthens me. It comforts me. It emboldens me to seek shelter in Christ and not myself and to seek forgiveness and dependence on God. So this righteousness is first the objective righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is imputed to us that we can spiritually put on as a breastplate daily. But the Bible also speaks of what we call an imparted righteousness. That's where God is progressively working out godliness and righteousness in our life. Now, we call this process growing in godliness and holiness, we call it sanctification, don't we? And it's God's work in us over years, by the Spirit, through the Word, and the desire is to advance us in a more devout, holy life, that is, a life that is marked by moral purity and obedience before God. And this gets to the point of how we're to wear the breastplate of righteousness. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it, it's God who is sovereignly at work in us, uh, growing godliness in, in every aspect of our life, but we're also to work out our salvation, meaning that we are to yearn after holiness. We are to seek after holiness. We are to strive after holiness. If our soul has been awakened by the pure righteousness of Christ and we've experienced the gracious love of the Father whereby he looks down upon us now and treats us not according to our sins but according to the perfect holy obedience of Christ, our hearts should now pant after holiness. Our affections should be firmly set on holiness. Our will naturally inclined to holiness. But this isn't always so, is it? And that's our great problem. We're still so prone to sin. We still have such a predisposition to sin that we must face it head on. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to recognize Christ's claim over our life. It is to say, I'm committing to working out my salvation in fear and trembling. 
To put on the breastplate of righteousness means to express the power of a holy, righteous life before God. It means, first and foremost, that as Christians, we must maintain the power of holiness in the fight of personal sin. Because we should all be fighting sin. We must recognize our inborn compulsion to sin, be aware of those areas that we're particularly prone in, know the circumstances in which we most often fall, we need to be vigilant over our souls, guarding what we feed our soul, uh, uh, guarding what our, we allow our eyes to drink in, and remove ourselves from situations before temptations arise. Now, none of us is as evil as we could be, but every one of us sins. Every one of us sins constantly. Every one of us sins repeatedly. Our thoughts, our actions, our affections are continually being tainted by our personal desires and affections. Our lips are prone to speak slander and lies. Our hearts are inclined to desire after unholy things. And all of this is because sin still resides in us. It's part of our fallen nature. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is a commitment to seeking godliness in every area of our life. A commitment to holiness that it would reign in our life in every sphere of influence. It's to shun every appearance of sin when it rears its ugly head. It's a commitment to godliness that mustn't stop simply by trying to abstain from evil, but it must be a growing desire to mortify it, to, to labor, to put it to death in our, in our members, in our body. It's a commitment to holiness that starts here, but then moves outwards and permeates every arena of our life as we love and honor our spouses, as we care sacrificially for our families as we serve our worldly um, taskmasters and bosses, as we are at school and learning, as we serve one another that in, this, in this fellowship of believers. We need to become men and women who are committed to growing in Christian integrity. It's a commitment that extends, you know what, even beyond ourselves to be a zealous desire for holiness in the lives of every one of us as the family of God here at CGC. A desire that refuses to allow sin to creep in and settle in the life of a dear brother and sister and lead them down the path of destruction. It's a commitment that goes with us wherever, whenever. Now, in our culture, we have a saying... What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And the idea is that when you go there, you can cut loose, right? You can feed all of your selfish desires and no one's going to know about it. But as my friend realized, practical holiness must always walk with us. It must always lead us. It must always continually blanket everything we do. Which brings us back to the, the question of the pop quiz at the very beginning. Theologically, we understand that only God is omnipresent. He is all places at all times. But you know what? We're rapidly moving towards a world that is, uh, that is omnipresent surveillance. 
where there's no place that we can't go, that our actions are not being monitored. From every keystroke of our computer to cameras in every store, every intersection, even back here at the church in this dead-end aisle with, with all of those garbage bins. Software facial recognition that can pick us out of a crowd of thousands of people and then connect us to all of our purchasing habits online or the things that we watch. And you know what? I was thinking about this week. It, to top that all off, we have this weird, growing group of people who just love to prank people. They will set up a backpack that to be stolen, but it's connected by a cord to a pole. They plant money. They uh, wear intentionally provocative or revealing clothing. They'll set up exploding packages. And all of this has cameras watching and rolling, recording and uploading everything to the Internet. It's not simply pranks sometimes, is it? There, there are times when they're desiring to elicit a, a violent response. All being recorded secretly. All being posted to the internet with the desire to expose, to ridicule, to reveal the true habits of people that they have never met. That's, you know what, that's a real and urgent and imminent need to recognize the realities of our day and to rise to the call of holiness, to live lives of moral Christian integrity, <coughs> to eschew evil, even the little peccadillos that we would say don't seem to be unimportant, to be people who are desiring holiness in every aspect of our life. This vigil, this need to, to be to be uh, attentive at all times is even more urgent when we recognize the context again of the verses we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual warfare with Satan and the evil forces that rule this age. In, you know, in so many areas of life, there is this noticeable weight of pressure being applied to those who would desire to live godly lives to seek after godliness. But it, that gives us the opportunity in, that, in seeking after godliness to allow our moral integrity to bring glory to God. What a powerful one-two punch that is, right? It's like the boxer. You, you get a jab and then and you get your right. It, to be girded by the belt of God's truth in a world of subjective reality and to have the breastplate of righteousness which issues forth in a life of moral integrity. There is no duplicity here. This is why it's so important to continually, to daily put on the breastplate of righteousness. The world is watching. The world is waiting to trip us up. But you know what? There are a few other reasons I just want to, to quickly highlight before I go on to something else. And maybe you can think about them and pray about them a little later. There are some other reasons why we need to put on this breastplate of righteousness in terms of a holy life. Righteousness is a perfection of God. And as such, there is great value in pursuing it simply for its incomparable excellencies that it brings us, that it represents. This should be a goal in life. If God above all things is holy, our desire to know God should drive us to holiness to seek after, to know it. 
it's also an evidence that we are heaven-bound. We're on this journey. Because we, we still wrestle with sin, right? Again, on a daily basis. But we look forward to the day when there will be no impurities, no imperfections, no filth. And until that day, we are encouraged to persevere. It also helps us to maintain our communion with God in this life. Because you know what? The more sin that comes into our life, the more we will feel distant from God and the less experience, the less closeness we will experience with God on a daily basis. It also gives us a a great and necessary sense of true peace and rest with God. Everything else can be going awry and yet we have this deep, pervading peace. A peace that is in part the righteousness of Christ, but it's also a peace that is ours because we, are, we have a clean conscience before God. And you know what? It's a mighty influence for good in the lives of others. Not only for those who are not yet saved, but also for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. So that as we find victory in our daily life, as we grow in godliness, It encourages and strengthens them to likewise follow suit. Here's the last one, though. I really want to kind of work on a little more detail towards the end. It's God's desire for us. Righteousness and holiness is God's desire. We are to be holy. God says, be holy, for I am holy. This is the end for which all of his labors in our life now have been working, to move us to a deepening experience of holiness. It's all preparing us for glory, isn't it? We know that without holiness, no one will enter the kingdom of God. We even have lists in the Bible that warn us that these these sins are deal breakers. If they're part of your life on a regular basis, you need to be warned. If we've known the sweetness of of knowing our sins are forgiven, it's our obligation to be morally upright and above reproach. It, it, It must be our compulsion to pursue moral excellence in all that we are and all that we do. And here's the real problem that rises from our context this morning on spiritual warfare. Think about this. As much as it is God's desire and design that holiness be worked out in us, Satan's desire, Satan's design is to destroy such holiness in our lives, to besmirch godly integrity, to ruin our moral rectitude, to subvert holiness for his evil purposes. Satan is a powerful enemy, and he's determined. He's the master of false information, half-truths, conspiracy theories. He is a military genius who knows the best strategies to assault us. He'll present a righteous moral in life and say, you know what, it's so austere, it's so hindering, it doesn't allow you to enjoy the pleasures of the world. You know what, as a businessman, this is really restricting you from growing your business and and from uh, making money. Or he might say, look at the fear, or or look at the world around you. Look at its hatred. Anytime you stand for anything that you know is good and right in God's eyes, you can expect a backlash from the world, and, and that can instill fear in us. He'll say, do you think really God loves you? How can you know for sure you continue to sin? He desires 
He needs only a foothold in our life, a toehold to start, a beachhead into our moral character. Now, I don't know if you know much about beachheads and warfare, but I just want to take a moment and understand the danger that Satan poses to us here. Now, the greatest beachhead of all time was D-Day and the invasion of Normandy. Nazi Germany had most of Europe under its death grip, and it had this set of seemingly uh, heavy defenses all throughout the land, all along the coastline, set up so that no one could land, uh, come ashore. When the uh, uh, Allies finally did come together, they created this small point, five small beaches, and from those five small beaches, they pushed out into France and eventually pushed the Nazis back into Germany. Beachheads are defendable positions on a beach. They're taken by the enemy with landing forces. They're small pieces of land from which they can later launch out greater attacks. And here's how it starts. The enemy will do a meticulous look at all of the defenses and, and set a, a plan that is, uh, is their best. They'll choose the softest targets, the weakest links, then setting up an elaborate feign or decoy to draw attention away from the main attack. They'll then send a small group of determined elite troops whose purpose is solely to get a toehold on the land and wait for reinforcements. You know, as, and as, they, as they wait all these uh, reinforcements, there are specialized groups of people within them, forces called sappers. And these sappers look at the other defenses around them and one by one start taking them apart, cleaning the area of all landmines, of all barbed wire, so that as the main force comes in, there's nothing to obstruct them. As soon as there are enough forces, the whole group punches out, attacking key military targets, taking communication lines, taking bridges, destroying secondary defenses and strongholds. If you're the attacker, victory is determined by how fast you can get off that beach and take a beeline toward the capital city. If you're the defender, victory is determined by being able to pin down the troops on the beach and how fast you can cut off their supply line. Satan's determination to destroy your moral integrity, to destroy your pursuit and experience of godliness is without equal. He is ruthless. He's cold-blooded. He's bold and he's determined to find a beachhead into your life, that soft underbelly of sin where you don't take seriously, that repeated carelessness of putting yourself in a precarious moral situation, a nonchalant attitude to a sin, and, and he's going to find that place, and he's going to send in an elite group, and then they're going to prepare for the bigger landing force. From there, they will strike forth into your life, taking down all of the other defenses and bringing ruin. So we need to be aware and be watchful of any beachheads, any toeholds Satan may have into our moral character because he'll use that and exploit it for his unholy, evil purposes. 
the breastplate was that piece of armor without which failure for the soldier was sure. He was going to die. It protected the vital organs from mortal wounds. So too, the breastplate of righteousness protects our vital organs, especially our heart, the seat of our affections, the prime mover of our will. The imputed righteousness of Christ gives us an assurance that we have peace with God. It assures us of our eternal salvation, and it gives us a sweet communion with God. And this is also important when we're in the middle of a battle and the war seems to be lost, when sin is prevailing against us. We need the righteousness of Christ. There is also the imparted righteousness of Christ. That which God is working out in us, the, the, the desire and growth in godly living. It, it maintains the sweetness of our daily experience with God. And it emboldens us to stand forth. That yes, we are a sinner, but we are a sinner saved by Christ. And we have a clean conscience before God. That we are doing everything by the power of the Spirit that we are able to live for the glory of God. Two sides of the same armor. The imputed righteousness of Christ. The imparted righteousness of Christ. Both are good and necessary. One issuing forth from the other. Now, I don't know about you this morning. Did you put on the armor of God? Did you think, well, this is Sunday, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to cut the grass, it's going to be a lazy day, I don't need to put on the armor of God, it's going to sit right there, and I'm not going to worry about it. What's going to happen? I don't know what Satan's devices and designs, what that trap may be that he has set for you today. But if you have not put on the righteousness of Christ, that, that breastplate of righteousness, you will fall. And I pray that it is your desire that even this morning you commit yourself to a life of godly pursuits, that you would desire to live righteously before God and before this world. If you have any questions, concerns, or and issues that you need to work out and to talk with myself or an elder, please reach out and we would love to do that with you. It is our desire to walk with you, to encourage you in these times. And I pray that you have a better idea of the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness that we're to put on on a daily basis. I don't have any more 